Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you're joining us from around the world. Welcome back to Creation Conversations, where for the first time ever for Creation Conversations, it is actually afternoon where I am. Um, It's normally evening, because of course I'm normally in the United Kingdom, but I am coming to you live from the United States, where it is currently, uh, that doesn't help, that's my laptop time and it's still on English time so it's currently <laughs> three o'clock in the afternoon um so there we go um yeah, in, ten- in Tennessee Joe so you've got to be in, that specific in, in the US in Tennessee yes we're on central it, time here at the moment so three um, o'clock three o'clock now Glenn I understand that where you are you can decide what time it is it depends on where I'm at on my property it's either eastern or central <laughs> So, yeah, I've been warned because I'm going to be going up and staying with Glenn uh, in a few days' time. And uh, depending on where you're standing in the house, it changes time zones, which is something that's a little bit uh, unusual to experience for me anyway. But anyway, we are obviously down Sam. We don't have Sam, but he will be joining us next week, uh, God willing. But we do have the rest of the team here today. Uh, We've got Glenn, of course. We've got Dr. Diane Eager. We've got Craig Hawkins. And we've got John Mackay. So how are we all doing? everybody well i guess we're okie dokie um and i guess down here in australia where it's early morning um the sun's on the edge of rising and uh, i can see the sky so it's not going to be a a really warm day today clear sky no frost but it will be cool out here and uh, ministry is really bubbling along as we look forward to our new museum open coming up postponed as many of you know because i spent an unexpected week in hospital but now beginning to book up fully for the end of july and craig i'm looking forward to seeing you here today so how are you down there in tasmania yeah really good looking forward to coming up and uh, getting a lot done i'm looking forward to going to that dinosaur museum in brisbane that that sounds like a lot of fun Uh, but everything going well yeah, sounds good. How are you doing, Diane? Oh, well, thanks. It's uh, rather cold in Canberra as well, not like Queensland, but uh, I'm surviving here. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Well, of course, we didn't have um, creation conversations last week because I was in the mm-hmm. air and uh, Sam wasn't around either, but we're back and we've got another good program for you mm-hmm. today, which we'll explain a little bit later, but it actually came off the back of some criticism from some of the stuff that we've recently done mm-hmm. uh, at Creation Research. So uh, it'll be an interesting topic, the whole idea of camouflage and is it got anything to do with evolution? How does creation fit into it? Where does natural selection come um, into the equation? What role does that play? So we're going to be discussing all sorts of things to do about camouflage and natural selection and evolution and some of the things that they teach you in textbooks as well. But uh, to begin with, because say we haven't had one of these for a couple of weeks we of course showed our uh, races special last week um, as a a one-off broadcast but why don't we just go around and do some ministry reports because lots been happening uh, and of course some of us are even in different countries and some of us will be in different states and all sorts of stuff over the next few days Um, so let's go around and have a a, a bit of a discussion about what's been uh, going on in creation research glenn why don't we start with you well i had a week off and um I went to where these guys are so common, they're all over the place. Uh, 
I went down to the swamps in Louisiana to see my brother-in-law, spent some time with him, and he gave mm -hmm. me this. This was not a fossil. This is an actual alligator, mm -hmm. uh, probably from his backyard because he's got them all over his backyard. Uh, but I got back in time to uh, speak at our church. Uh, they wanted a creation message because they want to start setting the stage for a very special creation week that we have coming up, not next week, but the following week, we're going to have a whole week devoted to Indiana Joe, who's here with us. So I was trying to set the stage in a promo. Hope I didn't run everybody off for you, Joe. Uh -huh. No, it's good. I'm looking really looking forward to it. So um, yeah, obviously, we are in the States as creation research now, and I'll be here for a few more weeks. Uh, the past week has been spent for me mostly uh, running around down to Houston uh, for a big conference, which went very well. So thank you for everybody who was praying. And uh, at some point, we'll be able to give you some really good updates about what went down on down there. But it was very, very positive, and we've got some great new opportunities for research. Um, but aside from that, on the way back, I actually had a, a couple of hours spare, so I decided to go around the um, Houston Museum of Natural Science, um, which is a, a wonderful, great big museum. Um, two observations uh, about it. It was very... Um, very um, something that I've noticed about a lot of uh, American museums is they tend to be very sort of thematic. So uh, rather than the emphasis being on the fossils and things themselves, it's more about the models and putting all these dinosaurs on display and making it look really big and cool. And it was great to experience and have a look around. So we'll be putting a few reports on about that. Um, but the fossils that they did have there, which weren't the casts or the fakes, were pretty spectacular. So what I thought I'd do now, um, just very briefly, is run through a few um, photos of them uh, and uh, talk about one or two of them and maybe uh, John or Craig or Diane or Glenn can uh, sort of uh, jump in and, uh, and, and have a few comments as we go through them because some of these are pretty spectacular and they have some really good pieces of evidence. So it's an example of some of the stuff that you can do and see when you go around some of these museums. So to start off with, this is a big, uh, a big Jurassic specimen um, from the Solnhofen in the, uh, in the, um, uh, in Germany. It's the original Jurassic, which is of course what the Jurassic rocks are named after, the Jura Mountains which are in Germany. And uh, this is a coelacanth fossil. Uh, and we've also got the uh, coelacanth there as well, their modern reconstruction next to it. And of course, this is the famous one where you had a fish, uh, which was only known really from the fossils. It had short, stumpy legs and uh, or fins that they thought were evolving into legs because they were sort of short and stumpy and unusual and considered to be extinct for many millions of years until the modern living one turned up uh, in a fish market in, I think, Cambodia or the Philippines or somewhere like that, wasn't it? Uh, and surprise, well, surprisingly to the evolutionists anyway, who were hoping that this was some kind of a fish that was on its way to evolving legs, it turns out that the fins act as fins, not as legs, mm -hmm. and they are deep sea creatures, so they're nowhere near close to evolving legs even if they wanted to, um, but still pretty, pretty spectacular example of uh, a living fossil. And one of the first living fossils really to come to public prominence, because I know that you've said many times, John, that living fossils are one of uh, evolutionists' best kept secrets. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they don't really talk about it or discuss it that much. That's certainly true, Joe. Our first documentary 
was the world of living fossils. Mm -hmm. um, film starting here in my backyard, then moving to the local quarries, then to our collection, and nothing has changed since then no. because everything that's alive is actually a living fossil unless yeah. we've manipulated its genes and produced a new variation that never did exist, but the genes did. We've just put them together in different combinations. So can I suggest all of you who are watching out there, if you want a rock-solid argument, I mean that quite literally, <laughs> go to living fossils and tell them to put them in their pipe and smoke them uh, until they get sick of seeing the actual evidence that things produce their own kind. Great work, Joe. By the way, that uh, Living Fossils documentary is available to stream at creationresearchlive.com, and I believe we have a couple of DVDs around. However, it's a brilliant documentary. So it was the first one that Creation Research made way back in uh, 1989, I think it was filmed, 1990 was put out. So it's uh, getting on a little bit. And since then, we've had a lot more fossils that are living fossils and some really spectacular examples. So one of the projects we're trying to work on is to remake the world of living fossils. Um, so pray for uh, the opportunity to do that, support us with uh, finances so we can actually travel and film these things and places and uh, get over to Australia and film John and Diane and stuff. Hey, 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 I'm not well. a living fossil, surely, Joe. No, 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 no. You're the, you're the presenter. You get the, 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 the privileged presenting role. <laughs> well, and probably a few more few more years before you reach living fossil status but um <laughs> we'll be ready uh here's one that uh, i know you've uh one of these in your collection john we've actually got the the modern example of this um in in our uk museum the big guitar fish again this is from jurassic solnhofen um although this was enormous i mean that whole slab is about a meter and a half along so it's 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 pretty big Ooh, what's yeah. that that's sort of six 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 foot yeah, something yeah. like that Five foot, yeah, it, it was pretty, pretty, pretty enormous. And again, another example of a living fossil, as well as something that's actually preserved beautifully because this is a guitar fish. It's in the sort of the shark family, the ray family, right? Um, it doesn't have any hard bones. It's all cartilage. So it's got no hard bits really to fossilize. So the fact that you've got it fossilized is uh, a pretty spectacular example of rapid fossilization as well. Um, John, you should recognize this. Yes, um, we went collecting when you were out here last time. That's a stromatolite, uh, algal sort of formation uh, mm -hmm. that traps sand in layers. And uh, yes, the evolutionist loves them as thinking of the most primitive life form on the planet. Well, they'd actually dated this one to be about two and a half billion years old. Um, so the fact that, and, and it's actually this particular one I took the photo of because it's from Western Australia and yeah. of the Western Australian rocks. And of course, the living ones, the modern ones, live off the coast of Western Australia. So you've got them right in the same vicinity, one that's supposed to be, you know, two billion years old and they're still alive today. They haven't changed at all, uh, which means there really is no evidence of evolution in the rocks whatsoever. And I took a few other photos, by the way, John, which I'll send through of some of the ones from um, around Alice Springs uh, in the Red Centre, which is, of course, where we found uh, some of the some of the ones that uh, we went collecting as well. This was pretty cool. I've added a, a couple of little bits to it, but again, this is was a huge slab, uh, again about a meter and a half, so sort of uh, five six foot across, um, but it had this enormous fossil fish in the middle. And they actually had given it a name, angelfish. They said it was an ancient angelfish. And angelfish and parrotfish are in the same kind of grouping. Um, they get 
fairly sizable today. They tend to eat a lot of the algae and stuff off of coral. And of course, the parrotfish with their great big thick jaws break off the coral and swallow it down and digest it. They're all the same kind of grouping. But they describe this as an ancient parrotfish. Well, number one, there's your modern parrotfish, uh, sorry, um, angelfish uh, next to it, uh, sort of in a size. So number one, it's the same kind so there's not really been any evolution but you can tell that there has been some change namely the change has been downhill change it's been devolution they've devolved from these enormous great big angelfish down to the modern day angelfish that are much 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 smaller and people have them in aquariums and stuff right um but also it's just look at some of the detail with all the scales and everything on it again this Ooh. is jurassic um so no evidence of evolution great evidence of good to bad to worse which is of course what the bible describes and also great evidence of rapid fossilization as well just one or two more quick ones of course this is the the famous fish um well it's often portrayed as a fish swallowing a fish but uh, if you look closely at a lot of the details, and we've spoken about this a lot, you can often tell that this is a fish that has been previously eaten before being squashed flat, because this is the Green River Formation. They're almost all flat, squashed flat fossils that have forced the fish out of its mouth. So again, evidence of rapid fossilization and deep and fast and fierce fossilization as well. Uh, here's one I've not come across before, John. You've got your little uh, nightier fossil fish on the left-hand side there, like the little herrings. And then on the right-hand side, you've got this rather amazing fossil bat. <laughs> Just spectacular. Of course, you've got flying creatures and swimming creatures Ooh. buried together. So we're definitely looking at something catastrophic here, although uh, probably not on a, on a global flood scale. That's right, isn't it, John? No, Joe, that's, that's Green River, not Solnhofen. This is Green River here, yes. Yes, we've recently written about a Green River fossil bat in, uh, you'll find that in our fact mm. file. Mm. Yeah, there we go. And so these are some great examples that you can see in the real world. Now, John, I'm going to let you uh, uh, talk about this because uh, you requested specifically high-resolution photos of this um, yes. when, I, uh, when I showed you about them. So um, what, what are we dealing okay. with here? Uh, see the fossil on the left-hand side and the actual skull of a modern salamander on the right-hand side. We actually have a fossil as good as that from Texas, brought out here by Joe Taylor before mm -hmm. he went to be with the Lord. What we don't have is the little... Uh, um, cast there or the replica of the skull that Joe's offering to pick up for us in the USA. Uh, not all that expensive, but it will look like our uh, uh, our display in the new creation discovery center here in Brisbane. And I'm really pleased to tell you, Joe, apart from the fossil bat, we have samples of every fossil you've showed so far mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in our creation museum. Uh, I, I'm a bit envious sometimes of the size of some of theirs, but then my luggage doesn't go to carrying a two-metre-long fossil angelfish <laughs> back to Australia. But uh, we have every one of those in the Creation Museum, and so we know from not just reading books, not just taking pictures in museums, but because we actually have the specimens that mm -hmm. salamanders have turned into salamanders, and they used to be much more impressive in size. Yeah, and it's... Um... Just amazing to be able to get all this stuff and, and and put it on display as well as go and see some of these examples. So that's the end of my uh, little report. Over the next few days, because like I said, um, we've been 
doing stuff with the conference and traveling and been pretty busy. So I haven't been able to get much out about, you know, Indiana Joe's American road trip, but that's going to be changing because this Creation Conversations is kind of kickstarting that. And so over the next few days, I've got my wife, Sarah, and joining me uh, later on today. And uh, she's our media person filming and everything, right? So we're going to be getting a lot more content out there. We've got big plans to do some filming with Glenn and uh, and stuff around the fossil collection and going out and doing some research and looking for some polystrate trees and so on and so forth. So do uh, continue to keep an eye out on our social media channels, like and follow and everything else. All right, um, Craig, shall we come over to, uh, to you next for your reports? Yeah, okay. Joe, just a, a brief report. I've had another bit of a field trip uh, during the week uh, with some of our supporters there. And apologies to Mary with the photo with her eyes shut, but it's the only one I took. So, <laughs> but there's some of our close by local supporters, and it was great to get out with uh, the boys who wanted to show me a couple of the sites near their place. Um, I'll just click on that. Uh, that's that's the area, so the Creation Discovery Centre, Beauty Point, up the top, and they're all fossil sites that we've we've found in our local area, so uh, quite a lot. And this was uh, down sort of in the midst of these ones down there, down low. But it's always surprising to, to me, at least, to uh, find marine fossils right out in the scrub like this. And uh, this is where we were on our way to find graptolites, and um, that's why I titled that Graptolites and Stalactites because we'll get onto the Stalactites in a moment. But we had a tip-off that there were Graptolites in this area, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, here are the boys when we finally found some. It took us quite a while till we first came across some because the university had been there many years ago but um, had collected quite a bit, I think. Uh, so this is what we found. Um, Graptolites are small floating probably corals, I believe, John. Um, and uh, one of the things you can see in that picture, which John pointed out when I showed him, was how they're all orientated in the same sort of direction, which is indicating water flow uh, when they're buried. They've also been um, compressed, according to the university reports for the area. And so they've been, um, yeah, rapidly dumped and compressed in water. So here's the report, and you can't obviously can't read that, but there's a picture of what graptolites look look like on the far left there. Um, each of those little sort of tubes there is an individual creature. And um, there's an interesting thing that I pulled out of this report. You can see that that's, that's the clue because it told us about the area and it just so happened that the supporters knew the landowner who led us on to go and have a look at them. So that was great. Um, but there's there's two little interesting bits there that I noticed in the report that on the same bedding surfaces as the graptolites and also stratigraphically below them are poorly preserved plant remains. And obviously ocean floating graptolites don't occur with land plants normally. So that's another indication of sort of mass dumping and this bed um, occurs the same sort of bed occurs right through to victoria and i think john's investigated those beds with graptolites up there in victoria so it's interesting that land plants are below them stratigraphically and mixed in with the same 
same layer that the graptolites are found on. So I'll keep moving along because I know we've got lots to cover. So getting onto the stalactites, the boys knew of a cave. So this is not a, a well-known public cave, but it's a, a cave and that's how we had to get into it. I was a little bit nervous <laughs> at first. Um, crawling in, there was a big rock just, just uh, through there that you had to sort of scramble between two. So it was a little bit tight, um, but that's what it was like inside. And you can sort of see on the floor there, just so I don't get in trouble a little bit later, but um, you can see some of the, the broken stalactites. I don't think that that's people breaking them off. There is a nearby quarry that has a lot of blasting and uh, there, there seemed to be a bit of evidence of land movement there as well. So they seem to be naturally breaking off. Perhaps people have occasionally broken them off as well as they've gone through. Um, but we picked up a few of those. Um, now, I think, and now geologists can confirm this, I thought that that little straw looked very much like some of our stalactite machines um, coming off the end of the stalactite on the right there. Very much so. Yeah, yeah which is what, what attracted my attention to it. So it's still a wet cave, it's still operating. Um yeah, there's some stalactites. I didn't realise, probably because I'm just haven't had a lot to do with it over time, but stalactites can be quite hollow inside. Um, not always. I, well, I think you're saying they need that, John, to, to operate. But um, well, Basically, uh, Craig, they start out as a hollow straw and that hmm. hollow will remain. Sometimes it remains for a long time. Other times it will block up with calcite precipitation and then the mm. stalactite will grow only from the outside, but it certainly grows a lot faster if it remains hollow on the inside. Yeah, so the one on the left there is actually quite a big one. It's probably the size of my leg, um, and it's got a big big hollow in it as well. Um, just a couple of points of interest as well. There's uh, an endemic cave spider. It's only known from Tasmania, although the nearest relatives uh, as they're called, uh, are also known in South America. This is quite a big spider, and it was right there at the entrance when you first came in. You shine it, and they've got big webs as well, so it gives me visions of Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, 18, up to 18 centimetres or 7-inch um, span with the legs, quite a big spider, and qu quite possibly, although no one really knows, um, they don't think it's deadly, but it uh, probably has a bite, a bit like a redback spider, which um, can be very painful. You're not going to be you're not going to be trying to do a lovely scientific experiment and find out about it. No, no, no I've done that with a, an inch long. The the knowledge of of, of spider venom. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that with an inchman, which is a an inch long um, ant that we have yeah. in Australia, and. Uh, and put my finger up to it and bit me and it was quite quite hard but i'm not going to do that with a spider no <laughs> um and there was also some snail shells in there so i was wondering whether these were fossils to begin with but they're not it's quite a common uh, snail in the area and i suspect a bird has been collecting them and eating them and um and bringing them into the cave i did find a bird bone in there as well so that that may be what's happening there uh, another interesting snail in the wet forest of Tassie. And that's just the last slide there. That's one of the stalactites that we we uh, 
well, those boys on an earlier visit had actually pulled out. So that was on the floor. Don't threat. Right. We're not, don't, don't fret. We're not breaking them off or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But we thought we might recover one of the ones off the floor and maybe display it. Nice. Looking Ooh, good. Good. Okay. So that's what I, one of the things I've been doing during the week, Joe. Great stuff. Great stuff. Thanks for that. Well, uh, we've got two more reports to do we've got diane and then john and then we'll take a little bit of a break and uh, take some questions and have a bit of a chat about what we've seen so far before we move on to our main topic so diane over to you and i think you've got a report for us on the latest newsletter that has gone out yes we sent out a newsletter the the week before last um which has some wonderful ministry news about uh our developments with our new fossil um display uh, in Brisbane. John will talk a little bit more about that. But as usual, we also had some science reports uh, of uh, interesting things that have been mm -hmm. reported in the general scientific news. Um, <clears throat> just let me get to uh, move on here. Your slides are all up and ready to go. Yes, that's right. One of them was about a pair of poisonous birds. Now, who has ever heard of poisonous birds? Uh, well, I actually had to confess I hadn't heard of poisonous birds, but apparently um, there are poisonous birds in that they have poison secre uh, sequestered in their feathers. And uh, a couple of scientists found these in, uh, in Papua New Guinea. They're not all that common in the, in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, the rufous-necked bellbird and the regent whistler. And they contain a substance called batraxotoxin, uh, <clears throat> which is also found in poison dart frogs. And that led us, of course, to uh, ask the question, well, why would God make poisonous birds and frogs? And uh, you can find out our answer to that uh, and also how they got to be poisonous. Uh, so that's, uh, that's an interesting thing that uh, uh, we're always learning and uh, so I certainly learnt something there. And so we like to share the things that we are learning as well with other people. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, learn new things. That's, uh, that's a good thing. Uh, and then we had um, a treasure trove of Welsh fossils. Uh, uh, this was uh, a, a fossil layer that was discovered by some scientists who actually live in Wales and uh, during the um, lockdown time uh, over the COVID restrictions, they went um, bossicking around their own area and they found this uh, rock layer that contained what they described as a highly diverse middle Ordovician fauna. Now, that's one of those words that you read about in the so-called geological column. Uh, the interesting thing about this layer was that it included some animals which are have been classified as Cambrian in the past, and it also included examples of things that are still living. The word extant is the opposite of extinct. So extinct means dead. Um, it's the ultimate form of death because there's no, nothing left of your kind, and extant means still going. Uh, so we had this mixture of extinct and extant animals and things that were uh, previously classified as Cambrian, uh, which led us to uh, think about, well, where do we get these names from? Because it's good to be reminded. Um, Cambrian and Ordovician, and another uh, word in the um, 
in the geological column or refer to Wales. So we've got a little bit of an explanation about that. So, uh, uh, so this uh, brought up the whole issue. Have we got evolution here or have we got after their kind? And what do these words Cambrian, Ordovician and Silurian all have in common? Uh, the answer is they have something to do with Wales and you can read about that in our report. And uh, then finally, um, we always look for interesting, quirky little things. And uh, this was one I, I came across. Um, pollination is something I'm particularly interested in because uh, uh, we're all particularly interested in not only the clever design that we have in individual living things, but also how they work together, how um, animals, plants, fungi, all of the living things were all created to work together as well as being really interesting in themselves. And uh, this was about a Brazilian tree frog. Um, now frogs are usually known to eat insects, but this particular frog uh, was known to eat fruit. And it was observed by some scientists as also feeding on flower nectar. Now when animals feed on flower nectar, they often get uh, covered with pollen and so they can transfer pollen from um, one plant to another. And so these scientists thought, well, maybe we found the first amphibian that can be identified as a pollinator. And they concluded that this is a unique and outstanding example of unforeseen interactions between an amphibians and plants. Well, it might be unforeseen to the evolutionists because they think that frogs evolved to eat insects. Not a problem if you believe in biblical creation, because what did frogs eat in the very good world? Well, it wasn't insects, it wasn't any other animals. We're not at all surprised that there is a frog that eats fruit and flower nectar. So you can read a little bit more about the, the details of that. And we will have another newsletter coming out fairly soon. So a little bit of a heads up from that. You can read about... Um, and we're going backwards here. Now we're going forwards. Coming up in Creation Research News, you can read about chicken scales turning into feathers and you can read about Paleolithic pitch. Uh, and uh, that uh, reminds us of we've got some really interesting um, fossils in our new fossil museum that relate to feathers. John might like to uh, have mm. a few words about that if you can come back to us now. Well, I just uh, thought on the back of what you've just mm. said there, Diane, it'd make a good little video, I think, if uh, one of these days we uh, make some Paleolithic pitch, because it's, yes. uh, it's relatively straightforward, and yet it's um, it's pretty amazing how um, how tough and strong and solid it ends up as. So there's an idea there. Anyway, John. Okay. Uh, thank you, Diane, for that. And I know Shoggy was got some questions there. I'll just do one. We can do many of them later on. But uh, uh, two things come out of this. One is my observation, as I shared with you, Diane, that many years ago, I went into one of my orchid uh, sections, and uh, I have a lot of dendrobiums. Our orchids just grow on trees. Sorry about your yeah. um, weather over there, uh, Glenn or Diane down in Canberra. Uh, I just nail them to a tree. But uh, one time I came out and I heard an orchid croaking. Now, I've heard of people talking to flowers. I've never heard of the flowers talking to people. And as I hunted around, 
there inside one of my beautiful uh, dendrobiums, a beautiful pink and white dendrobium uh, derived obviously from some of the native Cooktown type orchids was the most microscopic frog, obviously rejoicing in being right tucked down underneath the nectary sort of area in the orchid. And it was enjoying itself. And I thought, wow, I wonder if this actually fertilizes the orchid while it's sitting there in the pool of nectar of doing its thing and advertising its presence to all the other frogs. Um, the other thing uh, Shogi War has uh, asked about is about index fossils. And yes, we will come back to that, but they're not classified Shogi War just because they're in the same layers, but they're not necessarily in the same type of sediment. But we'll qualify that a little bit later. And you asked about poisonous things. So, Diane, I think I'll ask you, expand on what that report meant. Where is the poison in the birds? Because I think that's what's got some of our, our viewers confused at the moment. Uh, the poison was mainly in the feathers. They did actually find it to, in, in their bodies, but it had been, um, it was more concentrated in the feathers, in other words, in the skin growth. Uh, and it's the same with the poison dart frogs. The, the poison is actually in their skin, in the, in the skin glands. Uh, so unless, they unless don't you... actually make the poison. Uh, certainly with the poison dart frogs, we know they get the poison from, uh, it's a concentration of, chemicals that they get from their own diet. They, they eat millipedes and other in little creepy crawlies and invertebrates. Um, these birds in the Papua New Guinea, they live on beetles and, and other invertebrates as well. Uh, so they don't actually make poison. They eat it and or they eat these chemicals uh, which get processed and sequestered in their skin. Uh, yeah, okay, so... Just make sure you strip the feathers off the poison bird before you eat it because the poison's not in the flesh. You can eat the bird, but don't eat the feathers. It's just, it's as simple as that. But they're not manufacturing the poison. They're actually using it as a waste product and the poison already exists in their food. Um, so th that we can come back to all those because there's obviously quite a few questions. Diane mentioned our electronic newsletter. If you want our print newsletter, it's available online, creationresearch.net. Just click latest newsletter. And we will have uh, obvious articles like this one on uh, what's happening around the ridges in Australia and also on our new museum opening and some of the displays that are there. So a reminder, all of you in southeast Queensland, uh, my unexpected week in hospital led to a delay in the open day. So it's moved from next week to the end of July. So book now. We will have a marquee there so I can fit more people in, but there's still a limited numbers. So book now. Uh, it's it's a free day. We will take an offering up to, to help the costs of the work, etc. But creationresearch.net, I think it's the first little click on square you come to if you want to come to that end of July event. And Craig, we're looking forward to seeing you later today as you come up to help us get ready for that. Now, are we ready for me to go ahead? Uh, yeah, go? absolutely, John. Over to you. And then once you've finished your ministry report, we'll do a um, brief break for some questions and answers. But over to you. Okay. So we're very busy preparing displays, uh, brand new murals, which you'll see some of next week. But look what I bought with me. Now, this is a fossil fish. It's from the Santana uh, Formation in South America, in Brazil. In fact, 
These have been known for a long time as so well preserved, even their guts are intact. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't have too much time to investigate fossil fish guts. They don't make <laughs> a, a, a decent display. But of course, being a fisherman, I'm very well familiar with what fish guts look like, but they don't tend to last too long when I'm threading them on my, my hooks or whatever. They're already stinking, even though I just took them out of the fish out here in Australia. We use mullet. It's a, a abundantly available. And we strip the guts out in the morning and we'll use them for fishing in the afternoon. And if you've been fishing with mullet gut, you will know, man, wash your hand, wash the fish. It stinks real fast. The bacteria in the sun really rot it really quickly. But uh, reports from places like Santana, look at the beautiful, I mean, these are concretions, right? Uh, and the fish is trapped inside them. Most probably the best explanation is the fish was buried rapidly and the concretion builds up around it. That tends to be normally what happens uh, with a organic substance. So the fish, um, the fish actually begins to uh, change composition as it's buried, minus air, but it can't rot because there's no bacteria, there's no air for breaking it down. But what the fish does is it changes the pH, the acidity of the actual environment, and the pH will then force any chemicals which are insoluble as the area becomes slightly more acidic, and they'll form around the fish and actually lock it in, and it becomes a beautifully preserved fossil. So in Santana, uh, yes, we've got quite a few specimens for there for one reason. Number one, if you go to Brazil now, you'll find it's almost off limits unless you are a local. Fortunately, one of our guys has a wife who was born in Brazil, and they've been down there. She's a family, a missionary family, and uh, we have quite a few specimens from Santana. It means, by the way, we can therefore take the fish and br break him up, right? There's our classification bit so we know where it came from. Uh, I'll take you a bit closer. You see, and I'll show you this on a slide a bit later. Can you see the fish here at the bottom? That's the intestinal area. The central bit is the gut, right? And the rest of it, you'll see muscles around. And uh, we will be showing you this in a little while in part of the main display area. But the thing that's amazed people about Santana is that the fish are so well preserved, you can tell if they were a boy, you can tell if they were a girl, you can tell what they had for lunch that day. And in fact, this is true of quite a few areas and it becomes known as a magnificent proof of rapid burial. So one of the things we're doing is preparing a big fossil board because the average person thinks fish has lived, they died, they fell to the bottom, they slowly got covered up, and that's how you make a fossil fish. Well, if you did, it'd be like mullet gut. It'd be rotted all the way through, so rotted you'd have no fossil fish. So the presence of fish guts in the fossil in perfect shape is an indication of rapid burial. But it also happens in other deposits. I, I've got some stuff from Germany where it's so rapidly preserved, everything is intact. In fact, this afternoon, I'll be taking some of our lesser quality. Yes, no, this is not the sort of one we'd sell. But in reality, there is a fossil fish. This afternoon, I'll be standing it upright in a bowl of vinegar. Why vinegar? 
because the vinegar is a mild acid compared to, say, sulfuric or anything like that. The vinegar, you actually eat it on salads, right? It gives it that nice, sharp taste. So we'll be putting the bottom in vinegar, and within four hours, the scales will dissolve off. No, we're not the first people to think of this. There, there's one scientist who thought of this ages ago, and amazing, amazing, he just didn't find guts inside. We already knew that. What he found was that the fossil mussels are also preserved. But we're going one step further. You see, I've got six of these, yeah, reject sort of fossils, not, not high-quality museum fossils, but good enough to do research on, and we'll actually section quite a few of these fishes, and up at this end, we expect to find a fossilised fish heart. And we'll do it all the way along, and then you'll be able to come along in a month and a half's time to our Discovery Centre Museum and see a big display on inside the truth of rapid fossils. Not just the fish on the outside look pretty, Joe. I was really jealous of your big angel fish. Mine's only about this big, right? Plenty of in Houston. But I'll guarantee that if you dissected that, you'd probably find fish guts inside many of those as well. So uh, that's what we're up to at the moment. So that experiment starts this afternoon and we'll continue along with the displays. So those of you in southeast Queensland, come along uh, on the last weekend of July and if you don't get, this is not our email newsletter. This is our print newsletter. So lots of pretty pictures. You can keep in touch with us, reporting on the whole global situation. Yes, even uh, Glenn in America has got himself into here. Oh, there he is there, right? Some of the experiments he's done with kids and homeschooling. So keep, keep in touch with the whole ministry through the printed newsletter available electronically just go to our website, creationresearch.net, click on newsletters and subscribe yourself to that. Uh, Joe, back to you for questions. Thank you very much, John. Let's get you back on the screen with everybody else. Great stuff. Right. We do have a few questions that have come in. I know that some of them have already been um, answered or dealt, dealt with, but let's just very quickly say thank you. Um, let's say thank you completely to Doki Doki, who has sent in three separate donations uh, since we've been on the air. Um, three US dollars, what else have we got? Nine cents and 149. So thank you very, very much, Doki Doki, for all of the donations. We very much appreciate it, very greatly appreciate it. We've had a few quick uh, questions that have come through. Let's start with this one. Recently, scientists are reporting humans evolved from multiple closely related ape populations instead of one. What's the real scientific challenge to this assertion? Um, if I can just make an observation that I made at the Houston Museum of Natural Science, then I'll hand it over to uh, the rest of you to comment. Um, one of the things that you noticed, they had this a bit similar to what they have in the London Natural History Museum, a great big board, right, where they had modern day apes and they had the lineage of apes going back to a common ancestor and then they had the human lineage, right, from an ape-like ancestor to modern humans. And uh, interestingly enough, every single fossil 
ape-like creature, whether they argued that it was a hominid, whether they argued that it was uh, a cousin to human beings, whether they argued that it was an ape on the way to becoming human, every single fossil example that they used was firmly on the human lineage side of things. There wasn't a single fossil uh, example on the ape-like ancestor to modern ape side of things. Uh, now, I find that interesting because the question is, how would you be able to work out whether an ape-like fossil that you find is actually in the human lineage or actually in the modern ape lineage? Well, the answer is they don't usually get that far because ape fossils are so few and far between. Any ones that are found are automatically assumed to be in human lineage because they so desperately need them. Um, so what I suspect this is coming from, um, as has involved from multiple closely related ape populations, is the more fossils we find, they automatically assume that they must be in the human, you know, ancestral line and therefore get very confused when many of them don't actually line up and so as a result oh we must be evolving from lots of different ape-like ancestors or there must be lots of different human lineages and so on and so forth but there's one interesting observation um john and diane and the, the rest of the team over to you for any comments okay i'll make a comment first and hand back to <laughs> diane or glenn or somebody else who wants to comment many of these are using the trick of saying Neanderthal is a different species of human, right? And therefore, multiple species of human-like creatures because Neanderthal moves from being human to human-like to ape-like, etc., depending on which author you're reading. And so they are arguing these are proof that the modern human being has descended from multiple separate species. Now, Diane, comment on Neanderthal as a separate species, please. Well, the more research we do into Neanderthals, the more we recognise that they are fully human. And in fact, yeah. the secular scientists recognise this in the professional literature. Um, scientists comment one after the other. And in fact, that will be in the next newsletter. We've got that story about Paleolithic pitch was actually pitch that was found in, um, in a Neanderthal site. And as usual, one of the scientists said, you know, look, we've, we've got to uh, recognise how clever these people were uh, or how clever these beings were. They don't want to quite admit that they were fully human, but there's uh, <clears throat> all of the evidence that we're gathering from Neanderthal sites more and more shows that they're just, they're fully human. In fact, they are very clever, very resourceful people. Uh, and and this, the same goes, this, this is not a new theory, actually. It, it's done the rounds for, for decades because um, people are trying to uh, create the whole idea that there were all of these different creatures evolving and for some reason or other, all the other ones died out except for what, for Homo sapiens, modern day Homo sapiens. Uh, it's just, um, as Joseph said, they just keep on finding these more and more fossils uh, and the other thing to remember is that with a lot of these so-called uh, hominid fossils, they don't find whole skeletons or even entire skulls. It's very fragmentary and they have to put it together. And it just suits their story to say, oh, well, we've got all of these closely uh, related different groups of creatures that were evolving, but somehow most of them died out and we're the only ones that are left. Uh, hmm. the, the question there, what is the real scientific challenge to this assertion? Well, you've only got to look at modern day apes and people. And uh, 
instead of concentrating on what how they're alike. Look at the differences and you don't have to go very far before you start finding some really significant differences. So that's the real scientific challenge. Look at the living world today. Uh, one, uh, one of the things, sorry, uh, you go, Glenn. I was going to say just the presupposition of the question, they're already assuming closely related ape populations that were closely related. Where's the science that shows that we're closely related? Because as we do more and more DNA analysis, we find that there's tremendous differences in the DNA. Of course, if you ignore 27% of the apes and 18% of the humans DNA, I may have those backwards, but, and only compare the DNA that's, that's similar, then it comes out that yes, we're similar, but, uh, when you really look at the DNA, we're not closely related. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Sorry. Just very quickly, the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind with that in terms of the scientific challenge is the genetic studies they've done on human humans where they found all women have come from uh, a single woman and they called her mitochondrial Eve when they've investigated that, and that's secular science. And they've done that recently for, for the for the male population as well. So, the science, secular scientific investigation has found that humans have come from uh, two people, basically. Sounds familiar, Craig. I think I've read that somewhere before. Um, <laughs> since, you, since you've got the stage at the moment, there's a question there. Have you seen a quokka? Have you? Uh, well, I, I read that as a quagga, but a, a quagga is a Western Australian. Um, I'm not sure what a quagga is, whether that's an American animal. I, but think, a I think, isn't isn't the quagga that half horse, half, half zebra thing that went extinct in Africa? Like yeah, in yes, the 19, I thought it was 19th a, sort of century. a striped animal. Let me have a quick look. I'm sure it was like an African creature, yeah, yeah. zebra type there, thing. There is a quagga, which is John's referring to, yeah. which is a, like a little... Yeah little patty melon kangaroos yep. um, yeah. type animal that's from U-U-O-double-K-A. yeah that's right so therefore we need to establish the importance here of getting your spelling right spell check can lead you really astray so whether you meant quokka or quagga joseph confirm that it's an african animal with stripes yeah, it is yeah the quagga is a subspecies of the plain zebra that was endemic to south africa until it was hunted to extinction in the late 19th century i believe there are some in captivity no there isn't um oh the quagga project is trying to recreate the phenotype of hair coat pattern by selectively breeding the genetically closest subspecies which is the virtual zebra so they're trying to remake it again by um selecting the unhealthy ones <laughs> which is basically <laughs> what selective breeding for genetics is uh, only 23 skins exist today there we go um yeah, uh, so no, I haven't seen a quagga. I'd heard of the quagga, but um, yeah, there we go. Anyway, um, take that off. All right, well, uh, let's move on now because I think we dealt with um, Shogiwa's questions earlier with regards to index fossils and the like. So uh, let's carry on and move on to the main topic for tonight which we'll start with you john and then go on to um diane so let's get your uh, slides mm -hmm. up and running okay. uh, if you want to bring them up on your screen for me and then we'll get them up at this end and we'll be all ready to go 
Okay, so remind me again how yeah, we just do Just go down there. to the bottom of the screen, find your PowerPoint presentation, yeah, there we go. click on your full screen, and then you're ready to go. So we're ready to go? We're ready to go. Good. Okay, Jurassic Ark, we found this little fellow about uh, two weeks ago, right? You see he's on a grey tree in the shade, and he's largely a combination of irregular spots, whitish, greyish spots with a dark background. Now, most people, I'll guarantee, would never see him. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that has been built into us and you want to major on you working out uh, how to use it is the ability of your eyes to unconsciously detect movement, right? Now, you may not see that guy when you look straight, but if you are just generically looking around the world, if he moves one bit, your mind registers it. Now, that's a skill that I've majored on out in the wild, and it helps keep you alive in dangerous country. It helps keep you conscious uh, of what's actually out there uh, and enables you to tell the difference between a fossil lizard and a living one. This little guy moved. Now, I thought, I've seen that sort of a structure before. This is some sort of gecko, but not one we'd seen at Jurassic Ark before. Jurassic Ark, for those of you who may be joining us new, go to our website, creationresearch.net, look up Jurassic Ark. It's our outdoor creation museum, 22 acres of actually fossils and uh, beautiful botany and trees, etc., including this little guy. Now, there's the same lizard. I gently picked him up. Now, definitely it's a gecko. I've grown up with geckos, usually the Malaysian sort or the Asian house geckos. We'll show you some of them later. But I took him off the tree, and how good are your eyes? Notice his tail. It's flat. It's semi-fat. And yet the white strips, the white bits, have changed color. I've now got him out in the sunshine. The sky is blue, and the white patches are becoming blue patches. Now, is this camouflage? It's definitely an ability to change color. There he is after a little while longer. And I press the clarify button so you can see the colors a little better. Notice he's covered in spots and yet his tail has got little stripes on it. And the stripes are tending to move to yellow and the white patches are definitely becoming more blue. And he's got those cute little cling on to everything right side up and upside down feet that geckos are famous for. Well, we posted this on our Facebook page and said, who can recognize the ID? It's a gecko, and we've never seen one like this before at Jurassic Ark. Well, congratulations to the James family. Paul James, yes, we've known Marion uh, and Paul James for quite a while. Now, good on you guys. Paul identifies it as the robust velvet gecko, nebulifera robusta of the family, diplodac. Well, you can work out how to say words like that. But it's a gecko, and it's a robust velvet gecko. But velvet gecko, we knew about. So when you look at our robust, robust velvet gecko, the robust bit is new. Velvet geckos, well, yes, he looks just like the other velvet geckos, except he's a slightly different color. Now, what's he doing? I've taken him from the shade where he was just black and white and very hard to see unless you spotted something moving. I've put him in the sunshine and he's going 
blue because it was a blue sky day. I don't know if he does grey on grey sky days, but he definitely did blue on blue sky days. All right, there's the other velvet gecko we found at our Jurassic Ark. We lifted up a lid that had been sitting. Well, you see the outside of the, the round bark there? This was a tiny space underneath a big tin of iron filings that had been donated to us for use in experiments. And in the tiny space underneath was this spotted little gecko. Now, notice he's pretty much the same shape, but he's actually a different colour. I took him off the space. I put him on the ground uh, on a piece of fibro. You know, that's sort of like a cement board. And the sky is bluey grey that day. Notice his tail has already changed colour. And yet the spots are sort of light blue. And the rest of the body is the same. Watch what happens. I put him on the ground. Do you notice a yellowing colour coming on his head? Do you notice the side of his body is going to fluorescent blue, I guess? Oh, by the way, look at the colour of some of the leaves. This is just a pile of gum leaves, and some of them are shady blue, some of them are shady yellow, some of them are shady orange, and it's a pile of sticks. And like most people, you'd say, he's hard to see. Well, I put him back on the side of the tank. Do you notice his the fluorescence is unbelievable? What's he doing? Well, he's definitely changing colour as we watch. His head has gone yellowish, but the spots on the back, the yellow is now extending all the way down, and the fluorescent blue is amazing. It really does uh, disguise his outline for sure. Then I put him in my hand, and the sky all of a sudden was really blue. Now, we posted this on our website uh, ages ago. We posted the new one, and we talked about how this ability to um, change color, uh, the ability to appear to camouflage, the ability to do all of these were wonderful evidences of God's forethought in actually creating these creatures. Look at that beautiful color. Now, when we picked him out from under the orange-brown tank with the dirty, rusty spot, he was dirty, rusty brown. Now he's out on the blue sky day, and our southern spotted velvet gecko is doing its color thing. Wow. Now, when we mentioned the fact that this could be called camouflage, but yet it doesn't make sense to call it camouflage because my hand is pink. But boy, is he beautiful. Here's my darling wife. Yeah, a few years ago. And she's laughing seriously at the geckos on one of our back windows. I asked her to turn around and she couldn't stop laughing at what they were doing. There was a whole pack of them out there and they were rapidly competing with each other, chasing moths. Um, there's my flashlight showing up in the window. You see the guy in the bottom? He doesn't seem to be making too much progress. You can see his splayed little hold onto everything to, you know, in a clause. We, we could do a whole program on the electrostatic attraction these feet have for, for surfaces, but do you see the one on the top left-hand side? He's sneaking up on this moth. Now, I don't know if you've tried to sneak up on a moth, but I certainly have, and I'm a bit of a moth failure. But these guys seem to do it so quietly, the moth never knew until it's too late. 
sorry fellow on the bottom right hand side you dipped out but the guy on the top left hand side has definitely captured himself a moth meal all right now this is our asian house gecko it doesn't seem to be really good at color it seems to be almost transparent and somebody asked a question about transparent fish before we might want to come back on to transparent geckos um, but the one thing we do know for sure is we have various varieties of geckos. The ones that tend to come out at night tend to be fairly transparent to gray. The ones that were up at Jurassic Arc were actually beautiful colors sometimes. I mean, that spotted velvet gecko is unbelievable, but then so is the actual gray and white one. By the way, did you notice the gray and white one and the actual spotted one had the same range of colors. They just used them in a slightly different way. They had blacks, they had whites, they had greys, they had yellows, and they had beautiful blues, just in different percentages. So they're called different species. But the problem is the people who criticise it said, this is not creation, this is evolution. High school books would tell you that's a good example of natural selection and evolution. And I felt so sorry for these guys who'd been so brainwashed by what seems to be a blatant lie perpetuated in high school textbooks where they think all change is evolution, but that's enough from me. Diane, we're going to hand back to you after I give a couple of little promos here. <clears throat> There's our two days for our Discovery Centre open day. Come and see the fossil fishes. Come and see our collection of unbelievable fossils and relics there, Saturday the 29th, Sunday afternoon, July the 30th meet in our marquee on 2 p.m. and 2.30. You'll get a guided tour of the new exhibits, but our space is still limited to 50 people. You must book. And the same display on both days, so you'll see our text there. You'll see our email address or our phone. That's on the front page of our website. So just go there. The first little clicker is the entry to the museum, and that's free. But if you missed seeing the close-ups before, there's our fish at the top from the uh, Santana Formation in South America. There's the broken bit at the bottom. And do you see the right-hand side? Let's take you a bit closer. There's where I broke it deliberately. I sawed through one side till we could get close up to it, then broke it. And yes, look at that detail. There's the guts with one of the gut valves still intact. There's all sorts of things inside here. And today, as I said, we're beginning the next part of the experiment. And yes, getting stuff from Santana, even if you're just dealing with the postage from South America, is unbelievable in expenses. So can I encourage you, donate to what we're doing, because in a couple of weeks, you should be able to come to our museum and see a magnificent new display with fossilized fish hearts, fossilized guts, and all sorts of other things, fossil fish heads. So that's what creation research is with the emphasis on research showing not only that God created and he's a genius at it, but the fossilization has inevitably been rapid and flood based. Okay. In fact, Joe, um, when you take my pictures off here in a moment, um, we're, we're going to do a whole program on fast fossils, correct? Uh, fast fossils can, only, fossils can only form rapidly, not slowly. That's one of our new posters. Indeed up in the museum probably tomorrow or next week so let me sort of go back to here 
and return to the whole program. We will indeed be doing the Fast Fossils program, sort of part two of our program a couple of weeks ago when we dealt with um, calcification. And uh, we're going to be going up to, uh, or I'm going to be going up to Glenn's place and digging through a load of the fossil collection up there that John has collected over the years and I've contributed to and Glenn and everybody else. So we'll be going through that and using some of those real life examples in the in the program. Diane, why don't you take over on camouflage? And uh, Joe, have you seen this in textbooks? I'm not just making it up. No, it was there when I went through university. It's still there in my old university textbooks. We keep an eye um, on current new high school and university textbooks. And things like this keep coming up. I mean, the most famous one that keeps cropping up is the peppered moth. Um, which is the same kind of thing with camouflage, right? The idea that before the Industrial Revolution, uh, the peppered moths were very light, uh, and then the Industrial Revolution came along and caused all the trees to go dark, and as a result, the moths evolved in order to be dark so that they could camouflage against the darkened trees. Well, there's two major problems to deal with the question in a nutshell. First of all, there were always dark moths and there were always light moths, all you had was a shift in the population because the uh, rarer dark-coloured moths before were the ones that shoe up, and so they were hunted more easily. And because of an environmental change, all of a sudden it's the dark moths that can camouflage and the light ones that show up, and so the hunting is going to switch. But you know what? The whole point is, is moot, really, because it was shown that peppered moths don't actually land on trees. And it's true. I've been out and actually collected peppered moths, right, as part of the uh, you know naturalist surveys that you do, uh, biodiversity surveys. They tend to hide underneath leaves. They tend to hide um, underneath things. They don't land on trees at all. And it turns out that the famous pictures of these moths landed on trees were actually pinned there by the scientist who was trying to prove evolution. So, yes, fraud does get out there very, very often. So you do need to be careful. And as scripture says, you need to test everything prove everything question everything and only hold fast to that which is good but yes you know, shows can up. I, add, I had one more comment there because i went many years ago to the peppered moth display in the natural history museum mm -hmm. and i actually went to the filing cabinets which i believe are now all in the darwin center but mm -hmm. i opened up the filing cabinets and there were several hundred years of peppered moth collections all dated and you could actually see the numbers of moths and what they were like. And even before the Industrial Revolution, there were dark moths, right? They're in the collection. So if you can get to check out the data, you'll see the lie exposed for what it is. And claims of comet camouflage turn out to be actually fake claims. So watch out for fake claims. Diane, our newsletter exposes lots of fake claims. So you've got a few examples of some of the reports we've done on camouflage being fake camouflage. Where you go? Yes, if we can go back to my slides. Thank yeah, you. Yes, all right. We'll just uh, go ahead of that. And uh, if we can get them to move. Yes, there we are. Oh, go going back to our beautiful glowing creatures that... Uh, John just showed you examples there. We um, <clears throat> we did actually write about uh, these uh, a couple of years ago. 
and we uh, wrote about some other studies that people have done of different Australian animals, uh, not just geckos, but um, even uh, platypuses and uh, other Australian animals, and they found that quite a few of them glow in the dark. Uh, and so you can look that up on our fact file. Uh, the uh, article is entitled Aussie Animals Glow in the Dark. And around about that time, we made this uh, particularly beautiful gecko the um, part of our uh, main banner for our for our newsletter, so do, do look that up. You don't need to know when newsletters were sent out to find the individual items. They are um, they're archived as separate items, so you can just do a normal keyword search uh, and find them. Uh, but uh, let's move on to this whole issue that um, scientists uh, and evolutionists particularly claim that the shapes and colors that we see in animals are there to be camouflage. And uh, one of the um, criticisms we get from the skeptics is, oh, well, if you believe in a very good world, well, you know, who, who needed camouflage in a very good world? But we have these things which are very obviously camouflage. Now, going back to the pe peppered moth that um, jo Joseph just mentioned, You've got to think of a, a, a more underlying question. How could a change in the environment actually produce the genes that are required to change a, a colour or a shape or something like that? That's one of the questions that the evolutionists never answer. But anyway, let, let's go back to a couple of other examples of things which are considered to be camouflage or to be there to deter predators and to somehow protect uh, creatures from being eaten by other creatures and why would you need that in, in a very good world? So here's a classic one. Uh, butterflies and moths that have spots that look like eyes. Now the other question you've got to think of is, well, we look at these things and we think they look like eyes, but what do the other creatures of the same species think? Do they think they look like eyes? How would they know what the eyes of a large animal look like? Uh, you know, what goes on in their minds, as it were, <laughs> as if they had minds? So we think these look like eyes, and and they do. It, it's quite clever. And some of them even have this effect. Can you see in, in the picture there where you've got that little light area within the black area which has the effect of looking like um, the sort of glint or shine that you get from the pupil of a big eye. So you think, you know, that that is really clever. This really does look like an eye. You know, is it a disguise that's been um, designed to uh, or, or has the effect of deterring predators? Uh, well, some scientists have uh, just tried to look into this and they have... Um, studied these so-called eye spots and they found particularly the ones that have what looks like that sort of light glint in the in the pupil region is very highly reflective of ultraviolet light and a lot of animals can see ultraviolet light but we can't so what they see is a little bit different to what we see and so that brings up the question well what are the animals actually seeing what are their own species seeing and what are other other animals seeing so we've got to try and look at it from their point of view rather than from our point of view of saying oh well we think this looks like eyes or or, uh, or something else 
And so people have done experiments and they found two things. One, one lot of experiments actually used um, artificial uh, butterflies or um, that had different patterns of, um, of so-called eye spots and they used these on different backgrounds to see whether they were uh, more attractive to predators or less attractive to predators and they found that the ones that had spots were actually more attractive to predators rather than less so it's not actually a good disguise if uh, if that is a reflection of reality um, the other thing is they found that the butterflies that have this spot with the reflective pupil um, actually attract females and so this is probably the real function of these if we go back to our very good world um, no it's not to do with um, with uh, uh, deterring predators it's actually to attract uh, the opposite sex so the reflective eye spots are really there as uh, part of the the natural world um, where butterflies and moths hatch out and the first thing they have to do is find a mate because the butterflies and moths being the um the the reproductive part of the cycle of their life cycle that's their main function is to go and find the moths so in fact these reflective spots are there for a very good reason that uh, is suitable in the very good world and again you've got to ask the question if these things were there uh, to deter predators, how did they get there by evolution? Um, how many moths got eaten before they got uh, they got uh, they got eaten? Being eaten is not going to change the genes in a butterfly or a moth's gen genome in order to produce them. So the, the evolutionists come up with these. Um, throwaway lines but they don't actually answer the question as to how it happens and when you do do the research and see what these things happen have that uh, they are uh, very useful in the very good world now the other classic example of course of uh, a color changing animal uh, like the the beautiful gecko uh, from Jurassic Arc but um, the uh, uh, one that most people know about, of course, is the uh, the chameleon, and and in fact the the word chameleon has become almost in uh, embedded in the language, not just referring to this little animal, but also the whole idea of blending into the background. Uh, if something has a chameleon change or a uh, that that word has become so so much associated to blending into a background and being able to change colour. And again, scientists have done experiments where they've tried to get into the minds of the animals themselves. Now, obviously, we can't do this, but you can set up experiments where you observe the behaviour and see how they respond to a particularly controlled environment. And what they have found is that chameleons actually use their color changes for communication. They signal to other animals. Now, again, this can be for courtship. And so you do get these wonderful varieties of colors in chameleons. Uh, and they really are beautiful. And we have to remember that God actually likes beauty. Remember, it says in, in Genesis that he made the trees in the garden to be pleasing to the eye as well as good for food. And I'm sure he made lots of animals to be pleasing to the eye. Uh, that beautiful little gecko that lives at Jurassic Arc. 
the chameleons because they not only have color, they have all of these beautiful patterns as well. And they do signal to one another. They are quite territorial. Now, that doesn't mean they're necessarily aggressive. So um, they can signal to other chameleons, well, look, I'm here and this is my territory, and that doesn't mean they have to fight one another. It's just a way of uh, of signalling and also um, a way of attracting mates. So the colourful um, chameleon patterns are really colourful language in the proper sense of the word, <laughs> colourful language. In other words, they are using colour changes for communication. That is something that works very well in the very good world, uh, and it's not to do with um, uh, disguise or uh, uh, or hiding from predators, just like the spot, the spot theory of the butterflies has been spoiled by the people who actually do the research from the point of view, how do these, um, how do these look to other animals or other species or, or other creatures of the same species rather? Now, a, uh, another creature or another group of creatures that, uh, that change colour, and this is a more slow change, are the creatures that have summer and winter coats. Now, these are uh, a couple of examples from, uh, from Scotland, but these occur particularly in uh, animals that live up uh, close to the Arctic Circle. So we have the mountain hare. In summer, it's a sort of uh, brown colour, and this is supposedly to help it hide in amongst the grasses and brackens and uh, other plants that you have in the Scottish Highlands. When it comes to winter, of course, you have snow on the ground, and so it turns to white. And uh, another example of this is a type of bird. It's similar to a grouse, uh, also living in Scotland, but it's called the ptarmigan. In summer, it's uh, a lovely mottled brown and grey, uh, quite an attractive bird there. Again, supposedly to allow it to uh, um, survive in amongst the, the brackens and the uh, low-growing vegetation there in winter when it snows. Uh, these things do, they do turn to, these are true colour changes that occur from season to season and they go through the cycles of summer and winter. Uh, and uh, again, this is put down to being for camouflage, but you've got to ask the question, well, how can a change in the environment actually produce the genes that control this process? Uh, and they have researched the genetics and they, they've worked out how, how it actually happens. Uh, so when evolutionists come up with these throwaway lines, we need to challenge them. How could this happen by the process that you believe in? Rather, is this a design feature that has another function? And if we can just come back to, to us, um, I'm sure uh, in, our, um, in all of our panel here of uh, everyone, you've probably seen some examples of colour changes uh, in the different places that you live throughout the world. We've talked about Australia. These two examples of the uh, summer and winter coats, they're from Scotland. Um, any other examples that you uh, ha have observed, uh, if we can come back to us now? Craig, um, do you, you want to go with what you've seen amongst the seahorses? Yes. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I could I could go on to my presentation now. Is that yeah, what you're go saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, put the slides up. Okay, so I've dealt with this group of animals for quite a few years now um, in our business. Uh, the Signathids are the fused jaw group of fish, so it includes the seahorses, sea dragons, pipefish, pipe horses, pygmy pipe horses, and a few creatures like that. Um, and they are incredible camouflages. It's not just colour change. Colour change can be one of them, um, but they can also have uh, a number of other features which we'll cover. Um, so these are a couple of photos actually taken at our facility. We've had uh, both of those creatures on display um, and they're very popular around the world, as you can imagine, in public aquariums for people to go and see, uh, which is part of what our business is. And just during the week, we exported quite a lot of them over to China. Um, sorry, click on that again. Okay, so here's an example. Um, if you look very closely, you can see the pygmy seahorse, the barge bants pygmy seahorse in amongst uh, the coral there. In fact, this is a species of seahorse that was only more recently discovered because uh, it was so good at camouflaging. So someone, <laughs> I think, co collected a, a piece of this Gorgonian coral and then part of it moved and then it was discovered. I don't know if that was Dr. Barge Band or, or someone like that, but that's apparently what happened. Um, here's another pygmy seahorse, and we did speak about seahorses uh, a month or two ago on the show, and uh, this one, you know, they, they sort of look deformed, and, and some of the variations that seahorses have probably devolved into, um, but uh, this is just showing some of the incredible... Um, color change capabilities. They can uh, show color changes as spots, but as in the barge bands, if I go back up to that one, it can actually have, uh, well, people think it can have coral polyps actually living in the skin. Um, that probably needs to be confirmed. Here's another example of the Denise's uh, pygmy seahorse, uh, <coughs> orange in this instance, on a piece of coral. Uh, here's a pipefish, so you do need to look carefully, um, but you can note, if you look closely, some of the external growths that they can have on them, so algaes and bryozoans and things can actually live in the skin and they can be incredibly uh, well camouflaged. Here's another type of pipefish, a ghost uh, pipefish, ornate some of these actually live in the Sydney area up through northern Australia and into the Southeast Asia. Uh, they can be incredibly well camouflaged. Here's another ghost pipefish. And it's particularly camouflaged, that one, because it's got some of those creatures uh, that in its habitat actually living in its skin. Uh, so, yeah, again, you have to look closely at some of those but the you can imagine the one on the right another type of ghost pipefish uh, in amongst weed would be incredibly difficult to see so um just some points on this uh they can change their color and they've got special chromatophores they're called color changing cells in their skin that um 
they they can change many colours and shades of colours. Never really seen a blue seahorse because that's not really a pigment. It's more of a refracted light effect um, or, or green, but there can be shades of green, which is really um, probably yellows uh, coming in and uh, and making them look a little bit green and maybe a bit of reflection off some of the plants around them. Um, I've, we've had um, live rock in our displays and that's quite brown at times. And we've had our seahorses very difficult to see against the brown rock as well. Um, one of the other things that helps a seahorse to hide is its sedentary habit. So in other words, they're always just still. They don't swim a lot. They don't move a great deal. They don't move quickly. As John was alluding to earlier, movement can really alert your attention to something being there. So they, they're quite slow movers and don't move a great deal. Uh, I've mentioned the external growths. Um, a bit of a question mark there on the coral polyps, but that's a possibility. And then in the sea dragons, as I'll show you in a second, they can actually have leafy appendages as part of their actual body. Um, but the interesting thing is we can get some of these great photos of seahorses, uh, pipefish and the like, in habitat that makes them appear camouflaged, but very often they're not camouflaged. And um, th this is a, a this is in the wild. This is a picture in the wild of a pygmy seahorse. It's white and grey background, and that's quite obvious. So what's really going on? Here's the weedy sea dragon. It's not always hidden either. Sometimes they can be incredibly uh, well hidden. Uh, this weedy sea dragon. Uh, but other times, and I've, I've seen quite a bit of footage of these creatures in the wild, and while they're hiding in amongst weed, they're not that super difficult to see. So what's really going on? Um, are they really some of the, the best examples of evolution? Rudy Kuda, who wrote a, a very detailed book on sea horses, sea dragons and the family, in fact, called them the ultimate in evolution. Um, are they? Have they evolved to that? They're often called a very fragile creature. How have they survived millions of years if they're so fragile um, before they evolved this capability to actually camouflage? That's one question that evolutionists would need to be able to answer. Given that there's no... Um, known ancestors of these things from what they've evolved from. So a question we can ask is the colour change for other reasons? And really, Diane's already covered a lot of this with examples in the chameleon for communication and so on. We also have cuttlefish on display. Um, that's uh, the, the creature there on the right of that slide. And they can be dramatic colour changes. In fact, they, they, they can have like streaks of lightning almost going through their body um, as displays and this is clearly understood as either warning or mating um, signals. It's nothing to do with camouflage, although they do appear to be able to use it for such. The seahorse on the left is uh, Hippocampus cuda or Hippocampus teneopterus, depending on which uh, classification system you're looking at. Uh, the spotted seahorse, it was once called the yellow seahorse and um, 
well, it sometimes still is. It's sometimes called the spotted seahorse and sometimes it's called the common seahorse. And the reason it's got all these common names is because people were finding black ones and calling them the common seahorse, a yellow one and finding and calling them the yellow seahorse. And that's how the common names, but it's been uh, found that they're actually all the one species. And this uh, seahorse we've uh, had for many years and it doesn't seem to change colour in order to camouflage. It um, will often seem to change colour when it's stressed or when it's trying to mate. They can actually change colour before your eyes. Um, they, uh, the male is coming up to a female trying to attract her and instantly they'll, they'll change colour, uh, often go paler, go more yellow and it seems to be very much associated with mating as well. So very similar to um, the, the creatures that Diane was pointing out. So just to, to finish off, here's some questions that maybe the panel can discuss. How would creatures gradually evolve camouflage before they were completely consumed by their predators? Um, evolution is requiring high numbers of um, offspring uh, with random mutations to produce things that would then uh, help them to not be seen by their predators, but that's got to happen very quickly before they're all consumed. And um, I personally can't see that as something that would be valid. Are creatures just using what they've got to survive in a fallen world? I think this is closer to the mark that uh, creatures have got certain abilities and they use them to, to survive and they, they learn habits. Uh, it's well known, for example, that creatures um, that normally would like to uh, hang out in the daytime and, and feed um, uh, various Australian marsupials do this um, and then humans have moved into the area and start hunting them and so on and then they change to a nocturnal habit. So often behaviours can change when circumstances change. And the last point I've got there is got a creator who loves to design things for discovery. And uh, this is just something that I was contemplating after watching a program called The Privileged Planet, um, where they were basically putting this forward that uh, God is someone that likes us to go out there and discover the beauty of his creation. What do you think, guys? Mm. Okay, now if you don't mind, Craig, I'll if you swap swap back to me on full camera, please, Joe. I'll add a, a, a brief biblical picture here so we can see it in perspective. Because if there's one thing creation research is famous or infamous for, is forcing the issue to what it really is. Now, all the people who've criticised our comments on um, camouflage or uh, variation have got a presupposition that the scientists tell you the truth. Now, we hope we've got across the fact that many times that's not true. They'll tell you what they think would be true if their bigger presupposition of evolution is also true before that. So again, a warning to the theologians who think, hey, we've got to take the scientist's word on the age of the planet, the scientist's word on carbon dating, the scientist's word on no calcification uh, in fossilization. Forget it. Scientists are human. Human are sinners. Yes. You've got to take God as a non-sinner 
a revealed creator who's actually given you a perspective that you and I need to humble ourselves and use. So how do we put this camouflaging art, which it seems to be, into perspective? I'll give you my experience because I live in a place called the Redlands. Now, there's no doubt about it. When I pick up my Bible in the Redlands and read chapter one, it says nothing got here by accident. Nothing evolved by chance. Everything was deliberately created. And in the beginning, verse 31 of Genesis, it was very good. Now, very good is defined not in terms of morality, but in the terms of diet. All the creatures, Adam and Eve included, ate plants. You did not need to camouflage yourself against an angry avocado. It was not, not needed at all. So camouflage, if that's what you call it today, did not have a defensive function in the first world. Okay, skip forward many thousands of years to the Redlands. I keep chickens. Many people keep chickens in the Redlands. We have foxes, courtesy of the British, who brought them out here. They're not native, and they love chickens. They love chicken coops because they can use their claws to tear apart the, the wire netting, get in and eat your chicken and escape. But here's what I've noticed. If you bring in a breed of chicken, okay, now uh, I've bred chickens ever since I was a kid. Papa chicken uh, or papa rooster, mama chicken has little chickens and they are almost invariably not all the same colour. Now their function of theirs is, is, it doesn't even need to be discussed. We know they end up with various colours even though you start with the same mum and dad. Okay, they grow up. They're in your chicken yard and some of them become red. Well, there are some red-headed people in your family and some dark-headed people. Same thing happens with chickens. When you put the red ones out on the red land, they actually seem to be better disguised than the white ones. Along comes hungry fox. It gets into the chicken pen and almost inevitably it will eat the white ones first. Now you can argue it eats the white ones first because it can't see the red ones. It doesn't matter what your logic is. You end up with the majority of redlands, red ones in the redlands. And we say they survive because they were camouflaged. Well, you'll soon find out how true that is if you run out of white ones and all of a sudden you discover that the fox is a little more wily than you thought and your red ones now start being eaten because it not only visually looks for white ones, they're easy to spot, you can actually smell the red ones and find their hiding spots. Um, but that's his last resort. But we use the term camouflage. But did you notice its origin? And in a real world where God created and everything was good and foxes only ate grapes like they are recorded as doing in Scripture. They only ate fruit like you can see them actually doing today. Uh, they ate vegetables, which you can record and prove they didn't eat chickens. Your baby chooks would have had any color possible. They would have ended up a rainbow of colors. Um, no fox to eliminate, no natural selection. But natural selection is real, but it actually eliminates the variations which don't fit in the environment. And so when you say it survives because it's camouflaged and red, no, it survives because the fox ate all the other ones. So natural selection is actually reducing your gene pool. The opposite happens when you remove foxes. And like a little town in New Zealand, 
where it's surrounded by beautiful forest in the North Island, no harsh winters. Somebody many decades ago let go a few chickens and the tourists love to feed them. You, you know the signs in the, in the parks that say don't feed the birds? Well, the tourists feed the chickens. And over the decades, the chickens have bred and counterbred and inbred and crossbred. Some people have bought their new red leghorns in it. And you now have a rainbow. I mean, a literal every possible colour, every possible size, because the only natural selection is let's feed them, let's fatten them, let's enjoy these chickens. Of course, a bit of a protest. Chickens poop. Poop is slippery. The council is worried about being sued. So don't be surprised that all those chickens have either disappeared now or they soon will because council as a natural selection pressure is all powerful. It's got brains and it eliminates all of the possible genetic changes. Okay, go back to a biblical perspective. In the beginning, everything was very good. Natural selection would have only enhanced because it would have been totally positive, not negative. You didn't need to survive an attack. By the time you get to sin, sin brings death. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You Christians need to remember death is not a biological necessity. Death is a penalty for a moral problem started by man and then spread on the whole of creation. A real dilemma when you get to the flood in which many creatures were rapidly buried, so much so that even their guts are preserved, right? And you can see the evidence of rapid flood-type burial, even in the graptolites down there in Tasmania, where they're all lined up. In fact, Craig, I suggested to you yesterday, you perhaps get some acetic acid or calcite, those little keratin-type stripes, you can probably end up pulling them out and see what a graptolite was like in the real world before it was so rapidly buried. It's actually still there. When you have a look at the flood, a massive fossil uh, interaction, a massive fossil formation resulting. And after the flood, remember, God gave Noah permission to eat meat. Now, he was not told to not eat pork. He was not told he couldn't eat cattle. He was not told to not breed cows in case the climate changed. He was allowed to eat plants and all varieties. There was no unclean creatures. <coughs> God actually said later on to Peter, why do you call things clean, unclean, when I call them clean? Now, you go down a little bit further, and by the time you get Israel established in Leviticus chapter 11, you'll find there's a whole series of rules about what the Jewish people alone are told to not eat. In fact, there's clean and unclean as a definition, and you can come up with some generalizations. A clean creature is a vegetarian. They're allowed to eat those by and large. Cows eat grass. You're allowed to eat them. Uh, but but you find lizards that go around eating up moths or whatever are listed between verse 19 and 30, if I remember correctly, as things that the Jews would have regarded as unclean. Okay, lizards, creeping creatures. Back there in Genesis, all pronounced very good. Noah, you can eat anything that moves. Creeping creatures. Noah could have had roast goanna if he wanted. He could have had crocodile because he was given authority again over all the creatures and he's free to eat them. By the time you get the Jews, the real reason for the clean and unclean definition is not because of um, the, the actual creature eating whatever it ate. It's because the Jews are being isolated from all other cultures on the planet. 
You might have noticed that God never calls them the adults of Israel, only ever the children of Israel, because they were spiritually really in kindergarten. Um, that they, they the Holy Spirit was not given. They had no real discernment. Look at the problems Moses had with them. Look at the problems all the leaders had with them. They were the infants of Israel, and God gives them a barrier that makes it so hard for all the cultures around them to intermingle. If you don't believe me, try and invite an Orthodox group of Jews to your church for a meal, a barbecue, roast pork barbecue. <laughs> won't get very far because these dietary rules actually separate and that was their purpose so you'll find in in leviticus chapter 11 some translations ask the question what are these creeping things and some actually put geckos right some some and these are all speculations because it's a, a creeping thing a lizards that covers all sorts of lizards and crocodiles and, and you name it are covered by that rule so the jews wouldn't have eaten them at all but remember, by the time you get to Peter having a vision from the Lord about taking the gospel into the whole world, the gospel, it's God's will. He made it very good. You ruined it. We ruined it. We sinned. Sin brings death. Jesus died. He died for the sin of Adam, which is spread on the whole world. He rose from the dead and the apostles are sent into all the world to preach the gospel. Okay, if you're a Jew, you can't get very far if you have rules about eating geckos and you're going to a culture that says, here, eat my gecko pie. Um, <laughs> they do do that, by the way. You find that those rules which were so necessary in isolating the people of Israel are now ready to be discarded. God's reached his point in history where he says to Peter, don't you dare call anything unclean that I call clean. And also from then, People are allowed to eat anything they like with one provision. They can't eat the blood. They're not to eat strangled things. The same rules God gave to Noah before there were any Jews. You do know Noah was not a Jew. He, he was not a person of Israel. In fact, Abraham wasn't a Jew. Have you come to grips with that? In fact, when you have a look at me, I'm not a Jew either. But I am a Gentile who's been saved by Christ, just like most of you need to be. And you need to remember... Yes, if you feel like it and you need a gecko, God has authorized gecko pie. I don't know what it tastes like. I have no intention of finding out. But that's the big perspective. So what you call camouflage actually fits into part of a degeneration, a good world made bad by sin, degenerating past Noah to where animals need to survive and they kill others. Sad but true till only the red chickens are left in the Redlands and we call it camouflage. It's not actually, it's one of the, all the variations. And the camouflage isn't negative result, not the positive result of evolution, but the negative result of all other colors being eliminated. I think it's probably time to throw open the questions for the last 20 minutes or so, Joe, um, a, a good opportunity. Absolutely, let's get this switched back on here. Well, first of all, thank you very much to Lynn Colson for a uh, donation a super chat we do very much appreciate your donations and everybody who supports us um we very much appreciate that so thank you very much well let's have a look at some questions then there's not been too many questions come through i don't think let's have a look here's a question perhaps for craig what's the deal with translucent see-through fish 
<laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I would say that that's that's probably a, a loss of pigments mm. on on a mm. on a small fish. That's um, they mostly uh, do tend to be the, the much smaller fish that are sort of yeah translucent, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say say it's a type of devolution. Have you got any ideas on that, Diane? Yes, I, I would have said the same thing. It's probably a loss of pigment, uh, and they survive particularly small fish because they can just disappear into into the background. So again, that's survival. That's not evolution. Uh, so it's uh, so survival is real, but it's not going to make anything evolve. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it just explains why some things are still here and some things have died out. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. But but, but the, the actual mechanism, I'd say, would be be a loss of pigment. Yes. But having been a fisherman all my life, you mm. actually do see their guts in action. So yes. it's, it's like that famous human being who had his stomach blasted <clears throat> apart with a cannonball, but it never healed up, and you could see his guts working. Um, totally transparent air hole in, in a human. That was very helpful for medicine. But you'll find with the little fishes that when they swallow anything, you can follow the whole lot. So they are good for gut studies, but that's maybe not their intention that the Lord <laughs> intended at all. But you certainly find some good things incidentally. The other thing I do tend to notice is that many of the transparent fish are also cave-type fish, you know, where they've lost the ability to use their eyes or grown scales mm. to protect their eyes from bumping into walls, but they actually are fairly translucent as well. Uh, no need for colour no need for any sort of um, colour in sexual attraction because they can't see each other at the best of times. Mm -hmm. And it's not giving them a real advantage from predators because uh, fish are mm -hmm. going to be after the taste, the oils in the water and movement, mm -hmm. uh, even the little sounds that they pick mm -hmm. up. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's not always sight driven, is it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. All right, good stuff. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> when am I going to the Grand Canyon? Thank you, has <laughs> asked. Well, I have yet to go to the Grand Canyon. Um, who knows? I may get an opportunity this trip. I doubt it, but it is somewhere that is on my list to go and see. Um, so just um, just uh, pray for that opportunity to come up because it would be very good to go see the Grand Canyon. You've been to the Grand Canyon a few times, haven't you, John? I certainly have climbed in and out many times and the worst event was when i had to do it all in one day to go down and get uh, uh, some photographs of research i'd done and i only had uh, basically 24 hours so i left at 5 4 a.m in the morning got back to the rim at, at 10 p.m at night and i was absolutely had it i don't think i could do it again but it was really really vital in fact joe i remember shoggy where if you look look up his question on uh, on uh, index fossils it's a good point to bring this sort of thing in now if you bring up the Grand Canyon. Oh, yeah, I'll just uh, pull that up one second. And while you're doing that, Joe, while you're here, we'll take you to the grandest canyon east of the Mississippi River while you're here. Well, there we go. That's just... <laughs> uh, there we are. Uh, yeah, time periods are identified by index fossils. Are index fossils only found in the same sediment? Okay, I'll make, start off and joke and add it as well, right. and then we'll come back to general. Um when you say same sediment, just to clarify there, if you mean they found in the same type of mud or rocks, the answer is no. Index fossils, are they've been defined particularly by people like Charles Lyell as a means of figuring out 
where in the geologic column you are. So you have a belief that the layers stack one on top of the other and then a belief that if you find this sort of fossil, a jellyfish in southern Wales, and it's right at the base of the Cambrian, then when you go to Australia and you find a jellyfish north of Adelaide in the rocks, you are dealing with the same type of geologic time scale. So they became known as key ways of finding exactly where you were. Now, two things. At a practical level, it's a very good methodology. So at Jurassic Arc, we actually had to put in toilets, right? When you have 50 or 100 people or 200 or 300 sometimes come to Jurassic Arc, we've got a lot of gum trees, but we don't want 400 people behind gum trees actually minding their own business. Uh, so we actually put in toilets, but to do that, there's no sewage out there. We had to put in the old-fashioned septic tanks, which are a wonderful biological experiment in how to rapidly degrade uh, organic waste and turn it into valuable liquid fertilizer, etc. But in doing so, we actually exposed a coal seam, right? So we dug down four or five feet and uh, you know nearly one and a half meters, and there was a coal seam. Now at that point, yours truly, John Mackay, used to lecture in geology and who's taught many, many coal mining managers and, and, and geology guys out there, I knew exactly where I was in the geologic column. Now, when we were further downhill, we had a rough idea of where our geologic section was in the orthodox geologic column, but finding that coal seam told us precisely because we've mined up and down the coastline of Queensland, we've drilled everywhere, and we actually know because the next town up, there's an old relic coal mine that was mining the first of our Jurassic coals. So here's the upper limit of the Jurassic coals just underneath Jurassic Arc so we can plot it exactly on the orthodox column. Now, having said that, that now gives us a name. Now, it does not tell you the age of anything, nor does it tell you how old the swamp was that it got into but it's a useful indexing tool. So there is order out there, and it's a mappable order. But to tell you the truth, I used to lecture in mining geology, and I used to lecture in mapping, and I wrote a book for the uh, government education system on geologic mapping, one of the best exercises I really enjoyed doing. And I did it this way. You see, having been high enough in authority, I determined that I wonder what would happen if I left out evolution, I'm doing a mapping book. I wonder what would happen if I left out millions of years. Now, I didn't need to tell anybody I was doing this. I just produced a book on mapping. And at the end of the year, it had worked so well for one simple reason. When you map rocks, the rock is real. You're real. Your position on a compass is real. The theory of evolution is not the theory of millions of years has nothing to do with where the rock actually is. So in this whole course, I did not refer to evolution. I did not refer to millions of years at all, but I did make one revelation. At the end of the course, when all my students did exceptionally well because they learned to map a real world, they learned to find a real world, they learned to explore a real world, and they used index fossils and index beds, and they'd all done very well. Many of them got really good jobs. And the reality was, I told some of my colleagues, 
hey, do you realize this whole course has not referred to evolution or millions of years? You can't do that. He said, too late. I did. And it works because we started geological mapping. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Read a book on Mr. William Smith, the guy who invented geological mapping. And he was a creationist. He believed in Noah's flood. And geological mapping has nothing to do with millions of years, even if you use what's called index fossils. Absolutely nothing. Nothing to do with the theory of evolution. And so, Shaggy War, index fossils can be real, but they don't mean the millions of years at all. Even the order can be real, uh, but nothing related to the theory that, you know, even sadly theologians say, well, they proved that this fossil changes. That's all Charles Lyell followed by Charles Darwin, and it's pure supposition. I think I've said enough on that. I think so. That's pretty good. Thank you for that, John. All right, we've got two more quick things to talk about, and then I think it's about time that we wrap up. The first one is a thank you from Doki Doki again. Uh, so thank you very much for your donation there, Super Chat, Doki Doki. Um, the other quick question which has just come through is, is Creation Research doing any more events on the Dorset slash Jurassic Coast this summer? Um, we will most likely have a field trip down there uh, this end of summer, um, early autumn time. But in terms of the big convention, that has been pushed to next year. So watch out for that. Uh, we'll be doing some stuff with Answers and Genesis as well. Uh, and they'll be getting involved with it again. So uh, do keep an eye out. We're hopefully going to be announcing dates and details uh, this autumn or this fall. Um, and I know that... Um, I'm sure that if we if we can get um, Diane and uh, and Craig as well, I know you've expressed the interest of coming out. If we can organise that, we'll see what we can do. But uh, do keep an eye out on Creation Researchers um, newsletters and uh, websites and Facebooks and YouTubes and all the normal ways of communication because we will put all the details up there when that comes up. All right. Well, it's uh, it's about time to sort of finish things up. Um, Yes, do look up uh, William Smith, Shogiwa, because uh, there is a fascinating <laughs> history of him, particularly with his with his map, uh, a geological map as well. In fact, lots of people around that time. Um, it's a fascinating study looking at the way that people were changing their thinking around the rocks and the fossils and the ages and all that kind of stuff as well. So, um, any last words from the team or conclusionary bits before we uh, wrap things up? Well, you don't mind if I slip in another commercial? Go for it. Uh, three things. Again, you can get our print copy emailed to you all around the world, or you can go and get the link yourself. So that's mm -hmm. creationresearch.net. Click on mailing list. Click on subscribe. It's free, and you'll be blessed out of your mind with it. You'll see Craig. You'll see Glenn. You'll see Diane. You'll see Joe. You'll see me. And mm -hmm. particularly the news on the discovery centers. And don't forget... A Discovery Centre opening is now on the 29th and 30th, Saturday and Sunday mm -hmm. of July, and it'll be a great time. Diane, you'll be up here, I believe. Yes, indeed. I'm looking forward to seeing more of our fabulous fossil display. Oh, yes. So you'll get to see our exposed fish guts, our exposed... I mean, what a museum. Fish guts on display. Fantastic. Perhaps I should put a, a bottle of mullet gut to show you what happens to them. But no, I may refrain from that. But you'll see that. So Make that, sure the bottle has a sealed lid. Oh, good idea. Um, so anyway, that's the 2930th, but you must book. Uh, you must text either the phone number on our website or email uh, saying you want to come 
tell me how many people you want in your group and what your date, your choice of Saturday or Sunday. Please don't say I want to come. Somebody just did that and I've had to email them this morning. Which day do you want to come, right? So we need to know precisely. And the good news is we have two things this week you can pray for. You know, we do not apologize for asking God's people to pray. To be honest, it's God who knows the intents of our heart. And John Mackay will make mistakes. So will Joe, so will Glenn. But God uses even a mistakeful sinner for his glory if you commit your way to him. We have a school coming to Jurassic Ark on Thursday. So pray for the leaders and the 40 kids who are going to turn up on Thursday. Craig, you'll be there with us. Yes, but I just noticed that you didn't include me in uh, someone that would make mistakes, oh, John. Thank you very oh, much. Sorry, sorry. Yes, I, I should have realised that after this program, Craig. But no, thank you for that. And uh, he'll be there on Thursday as well as Wednesday because on Wednesday we have a state school that's invited us in and uh, it's been iffy and offy and uh, all sorts of things, but at the moment it's on for Wednesday. So pray for that because both Craig and I will do that. Yes, we have to verify we've got, you know, childproof uh, uh, police certificates and all things like that. Difficult world to do ministry in many places, but great opportunities coming up this week, including the Dinosaur Museum. You looking forward to that, Craig? Oh, yeah, should be great. I reckon. Yeah, great stuff. Yeah, and I look forward to the time that I can come over and see it all. But until then, uh, you can join us every week at Creation Conversations where we'll continue to bring you updates. And uh, we, we've got a, a, another topic next week, which is probably going to be the fast fossils, the sort of part two of the calcification topic. It depends what we get up to uh, the rest of this week and into next week. But uh, Lord willing, we will be back then. Um, until next time, do follow us on all the different social media channels because we'll be bringing you updates and fossil finds and so on and so forth as we do stuff in the States and as we do more stuff at places like Jurassic Ark and so on and so forth. So until next time, Goodbye and God bless, and we will catch you very soon. So thank you all very much for coming and watching. Wow. See you later.